as this meeting. No, but why not? Good morning to all of our listeners. You are tuning in to 99.5 FM WBAI New York. Time right now is 10 o'clock. Get ready for your next show. It's going to be City Watch with today's host, David Brand, coming up next. Buenos dias y bienvenidos a City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live 24 hours a day, seven days a week on WBAI.org. We're a weekly news show covering New York City, the tri-state area, and sometimes, like today, national politics, plus the arts, social issues, public health, and movements for equity. I am your host, David Brand. Coming to you live once again from my home studio, overlooking my landlord's backyard in beautiful Ridgewood, Queens. want to give a shout out to our engineer, Giovanni Anglin, who is at the controls this morning. Thank you, Giovanni. You're welcome. My co-host, Jeff Simmons, is off today. Jeff and I have been alternating remote hosting duties since March when the studio closed to stop the spread of COVID-19. And I miss riffing with Jeff inside the WBAI studio on Atlantic Ave in Brooklyn, but there was a positive development last week. Jeff and I met up during a rally for small business rent relief outside Queensboro Hall. I was covering the event for my paper, the Queens Daily Eagle, and Jeff was working as a communications consultant for some of the organizations present. And he was wearing his WBAI face mask. So that was definitely an encouraging step, and I look forward to getting back in the studio with Jeff once again as hopefully, hopefully, we can keep the COVID rate down here in New York. But the progress that we are seeing here, in large part because of the vigilance and diligence of everyday New Yorkers keeping our distance and wearing our masks, is not the case elsewhere in the country. Dozens of states are dealing with the kinds of tragedies that we got all too familiar with back in March, April, and May. COVID-19 cases have doubled nationwide in the past two months, surpassing 5 million yesterday, the New York Times reported. Meanwhile, the economy is approaching a depression Businesses are closing forever. Tenants here in New York and across the country lack any consistent eviction protections. And the extra unemployment benefits that made people whole while propping up the country's economy expired nearly two weeks ago. Donald Trump just signed an executive order that is supposed to replenish a piece of the unemployment supplement, though the order has been called, quote, legally dubious. But there's no federal aid in sight for schools, for businesses, for states. Senate Republicans are blocking passage of an expansive relief package that would save lives and the economy. Trump is once again pressing to repeal Obamacare during a pandemic, no less. But there's a presidential election in 86 days, and two of our guests have, in important ways, been involved in some key events leading up to the big day in November. In a few moments, I will talk with New York State Senator Jessica Ramos, who represents the 13th Senate District, which includes Parts of Queens, Jackson Heights, Corona, Elmhurst. Last week, Ramos was appointed by Senator Bernie Sanders to serve on the Democratic National Convention Rules Committee, where she bolstered the progressive presence, setting rules for the party in the next two Democratic conventions. After Ramos, I will talk with election lawyer Ali Najmi, who recently sued the State Board of Elections after 20% of mail-in votes were disqualified in the congressional primary between longtime incumbent Carolyn Maloney, and three other candidates, including Najmi's client, Siraj Patel. A federal judge sided with the plaintiffs on the lawsuit and ordered the state to count thousands of disqualified absentee ballots, but not before Trump and conservatives twisted the issues with New York's mail-in ballots to fit a narrative that says voting by mail will lead to problems and to widespread fraud. Later on, I'll also talk with Brian O'Malley, the executive director of the Consumer-Directed Personal Assistance Association of New York and a member of the state's Caring Majority Steering Committee, which advocates for facilitating home care as an alternative for nursing homes and group homes while raising wages for care workers. So let's get to our first guest, State Senator Jessica Ramos, who was first elected in 2018 after defeating late Senator Jose Peralta, a member of the Breakaway Independent Democratic Conference, in that year's Democratic primary. 
Ramos has completed two legislative sessions in Albany and has had a big impact on state law, especially when it comes to criminal justice reform, workers' rights, and farm workers' protections, while at the same time serving as a champion for progressive causes and progressive policies. Her advocacy attracted the attention of U.S. Senator and former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, who asked Ramos to serve as one of his appointees to the Democratic National Convention Rules Committee, which met in late July, ahead of this month's Democratic National Convention. The Rules Committee voted to limit the influence of superdelegates, who are basically allowed to vote for whoever they want at the nominating convention, regardless of primary election outcomes. Uh, the committee also voted to require states that hold primary caucuses to make it easier for voters to participate if they are working, they have a disability, or they otherwise cannot make the caucus. Now, committee members also advocated for doing away with caucuses altogether and keeping corporate lobbyists out of the DNC. But what exactly happens at the Rules Committee, and why did Sanders want Ramos's progressive voice in the room? In this case, the virtual teleconference, I guess. But here to talk about that is State Senator Jessica Ramos. Senator Ramos, welcome back to City Watch. Uh, one moment, one moment. I think she's here. One moment. Sure thing. So in addition to some of the uh, issues with the Democratic National Convention, we were also going to be discussing some local issues, uh, how the state is addressing eviction protection and how uh, we might be able to get some stronger tenant protections, uh, because right now. OK, so we'll get to that in a bit. But right now, I'd like to welcome back to the show State Senator Jessica Ramos. Welcome back to City Watch. Hey, David. How are you? Happy Sunday. Thanks for having me. Happy Sunday. Thanks for coming on. So you were part of the committee that set the rules for the Democratic Party and for this upcoming Democratic National Convention and the 2024 convention. Um, what impact will the, these rules and these decisions actually have for voters? Well, the biggest thing uh, that we were trying to achieve was to really ensure that the um, agreement between the Bernie campaign, the Biden campaign, and even the Warren campaign was respected. And um, the biggest part of that was really ensuring that superdelegates weren't going to be on the first ballot, that there weren't, wouldn't be any outsized influence, that we were tr keeping true uh, to the small-D democratic process. Um, and, and thankfully, we were able to achieve that. Um, the idea is for us to have a path, um, and, and, and that will be a little more partisan, to, to have a real path to uh, elect a true progressive president um, in 2024, and of course, uh, in, in this year, making sure that we're electing Joe Biden as our president. Now, how did you get nominated to participate? Well, that's a good question. I suppose I don't know exactly what the process was, but um, uh, the Bernie folks reached out to me and, and asked me to serve. And, of course, I was honored to accept. Um, I, I feel very fortunate to be able to speak up for Queens, to speak up for working class people, um, and, and, and really, you know, fight for a better electoral process that can lead to progressive change. Because ultimately what we need is real good policy that reflects uh, the needs of our communities, right? And unfortunately, we haven't seen that many times around, um, and it's critical now more than ever. What were some of the intra-party changes that you were advocating for that ultimately didn't make the cut at this session? Well, I'll tell you, um, there was, of course, an election to determine who our New York delegation chair would be, um, and we ran into a few hiccups internally there in terms of process. And I mean, this is pretty public because it was on YouTube. Uh, but for the New York delegation meeting, uh, we were given a link in order to vote uh, in a secure way online. And it was ultimately decided when there was an election for who the chair would be that they weren't going to use the link at first, um, that they were just going to kind of use an up-down vote uh, that not everybody had access to. And, of course, you know, the chair of the of the state Democratic Party had nominated uh, Governor Cuomo um, and other folks had uh, nominated uh, my congresswoman, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. So we knew that we wanted to uh, actually uh, have have the process be uh, a lot more official. So 
that was a bit of a of a of a you know struggle, uh, but we got there and we did it, um, and um, hopefully it was then as transparently as possible. I want to talk about some of the issues that are affecting us closer to home here, and talking about the looming and still extremely uncertain threat of evictions for thousands of tenants in New York City. So Governor Cuomo, who you just mentioned, issued an executive order that basically allows the court system to continue an existing moratorium on evictions for people whose cases were adjudicated, settled before March 16th when the court shut down because of COVID. Uh, the court system says they will continue the current pause on evictions, but they don't provide an actual timeline for how long that will last and that kind of complicates things and leads to further uncertainty. The state legislature, of which you're a part of, passed a bill to stop new evictions, uh, so cases after March 16th, but that doesn't apply to 14,000 people who are already set to be evicted before COVID. Uh, your bill, the, the tenant, I'm sorry, the, the legislature's bill that passed, the Tenant Safe Harbor Act, it doesn't outright stop landlords from seeking money judgments for back rent too. So it's another problem. People may be not evicted, but they'll owe a lot of rent. So why couldn't the state legislature just patch stronger tenant protections? Well, that's a $64 million question. I mean, many of my colleagues and I have been vociferously advocating for rent to be canceled. Um, and, you know, it's been quite a struggle to think that, you know, the governor can extend these executive orders, um, you know, as he pleases. Uh, when we need it, when what we need is a much more stable solution. Look, uh, my colleague, Selmer Myrie, state senator from Brooklyn, also has a very good bill that ensures that there is a moratorium on evictions, not only for as long as we're in this pandemic crisis, but for an extra year, because we know the effects uh, on the economy are, are, are so dire or so or so real. Um, and, and it's really unfortunate that that essentially we are being uh, action is being timed with um, really the needs of landlords and not of tenants who unfortunately, you know, are really hurting right now because unemployment and underemployment um, are, are so troubling right now. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't even have much, much food uh, to put on the table for themselves and their families. Um, it's really hard to think about how much money is not circulating on our streets in our community simply because those who are much more well off are hoarding money and not allowing it to circulate in our economy right now. Um, and that's a problem, uh, and it's unfair uh, because, of course, you know, we have to believe that the lives of human beings are much more important than any profit that anybody can make. It is not fair that someone has 20 houses or five yachts when there are thousands of people who don't have enough to eat, who are on the verge of eviction every month. Um, you know, Robert Reich was uh, talking, former uh, Department of Labor uh, secretary under uh, the Clinton administration, had been talking about a few weeks ago uh, that we're expecting about 20 million uh, people to be eligible for evictions uh, by September 30th. Um, and so what we're looking at is uh, massive income inequality that has only been exacerbated by this pandemic. Um, and that can be perfectly preventable as long as we are figuring out um, not only where we're uh, getting our funding streams from um, in order to provide the resources and services that our people need. This is a direct but, result of underemployment and of low wages. And you have an event coming up in a little bit that I want to get to, but just getting back to tenant protections and stronger tenant protections, landlords and landlord groups will say canceling the rent will help tenants, but what about small landlords who need that income to pay their mortgage or who need that to pay their property taxes? What kind of supports for landlords and small landlords in particular would you support I think that's now absolutely right and as the legislature we've been talking about um you know how not all landlords are the same there are of course the left racks of the world the related of the world um but there are also people who this is how they invested perhaps their retirement income um and this is their only source of income and and you know we definitely have to provide measures to protect them as well um this the 
the rental system in New York is complicated, um, and there are a lot of variables that need to be taken into consideration. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I wish we had more small landlords than we actually do. I mean, here in Queens, we certainly uh, have more small landlords. Um, but there are uh, big companies like Zara, right, and, and organizations like Woodside on the Move have been out there uh, railing against uh, these huge real estate companies uh, who have been uh, hiking up their MCIs, same thing that we've seen in Left Rack City, hiking up, um, you know, uh, a major capital improvement uh, fees, which ends up hiking up a, a tenant's rent $200, $300, essentially evicting the person and leading to further gentrification of a neighborhood. Um, and those are the things that we're really aiming for. We're not looking to hurt small landlords who might only own a house or two houses um, as an investment or a family investment. Um, that's something that I would want to make sure that we're protecting. I think what, what we're looking at is the big predatory landlords uh, that are taking advantage of people uh, during this pandemic and also some discrimination that I have to say I have seen. Uh, there, unfortunately, um, many undocumented uh, neighbors really don't have a means to get back to work. It's part of the reason why we see so many more street vendors on our streets here in Queens. Um, and, and I really want to caution that, you know, they are particularly susceptible to intimidation from their landlords because they're undocumented, maybe only speak, uh, you know, their native language perhaps don't really understand their rights, even though they have many rights, including the fact that landlords cannot uh, threaten to call ICE on you, call immigration on you, uh, which is something that we've seen. So I want to make sure if there's any listeners out there, make sure that if that's the case, that people call the city's uh, Human Rights Commission so that you can file a complaint, a discrimination uh, complaint, um, and we can follow up and ensure that that landlord comes into compliance. Um, and so, landlords are so, looking for all sorts of excuses uh, mm-hmm. in order to, um, you know, get people out of their homes and uh, hopefully hike up the rent for more people to come. Uh, Senator, we have about two minutes left, so I want to talk about what the state would need to do to be able to provide some of that rent relief and some of that relief to small landlords. Um, the state's low on revenue, uh, passed an austerity budget that you were strongly opposed to. You came on our show back in May and criticized the budget cuts. How can New York raise revenue right now and be able to afford or more easily afford some of the support for tenants and and small landlords? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it was unconscionable that in the middle of a pandemic we were making cuts to education and more importantly, cuts to Medicare. Um, and, and it's baffling to me that the state doesn't have money when actually New York has money as a state. And we have more billionaires today than we had before the pandemic. They've actually been able to profit off of this pandemic to the tune of $45 billion. There's no reason why that money shouldn't be taxed. Right now, a billionaire's, uh, you know, unrealized capital gains aren't taxed uh, at all at at the state level um, or the federal level. So we we can look at revenue funding streams. I'm, of course, a big proponent of taxing billionaires and ensuring they, they pay their fair share. But we should also be legalizing marijuana and online sports betting, of course, you know, putting in regulations and controls and doing it the right way. But we shouldn't be looking away from a variety of ideas in order to generate revenue, even sales tax alone. Billionaires, again, are are making more money every day. And yet when they buy a new yacht, they don't pay any sales tax. Why did I have to pay going on today? sales tax when I just went shopping? What's the event that you have today? Today we're marching from Corona Plaza to Left Rack City um, in, to call on the governor and the state legislature, my colleagues, to tax billionaires um, and be able to provide relief for our excluded workers who didn't qualify for a stimulus check for unemployment or for any federal or state program. Uh, that is a big problem and a big reason why we have so many families on the verge of eviction. We need to be able to put money in their pockets. It's not safe to work, and in my opinion, it's not safe to go back to school, but that's for another show, I'm sure. Um, and, and you know, we just we really need to make our voices heard, understand that we need to fight for our resources, and that's why we're taking it to the streets today. 
Well, the governor and other critics, and we just have a few more moments, but governor, the governor and other critics of that idea would say taxing wealthier New Yorkers, billionaires, will just make them leave New York. What do you think of that? I'm worried that working class people have already left New York. New Yorkers are buying houses in Connecticut. New Yorkers are buying houses in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey. The prob- That's what we should be focused on because they are the tax base. They are the ones who are working and living here and paying taxes. Remember, the billionaires aren't really paying taxes. And so anything we get from them is actually a net gain. I mean, I have to tell you, I don't, I don't have lunch with any billionaires. I'm not going to miss them. Um, but I am going to miss my friends and my family if and when they have to leave New York because they're not able to purchase a home here or pay rent here or, you know, be able to afford the cost of living, which keeps rising while wages remain stagnant. So either we figure out how we fix the economy in, in, in favor of working class people so that we can continue keeping New York, the New York that it is, with an entrepreneurial spirit, with, with uh, its diversity, with its, with, with its vibrant uh, you know, people power, or we're going to continue to cater to these billionaires who do absolutely nothing for us. All we have to, all, all they want us to do is to wait around for their charity when what we need is their solidarity in the form of tax. Well, Senator Jessica Ramos, thank you for joining City Watch. Thank you so much. And because and, I know who your, your next guest is, I just want to say happy birthday to Ali Najmi. He was a great partner for me a few weeks ago when we had to vote against uh, uh, non-diverse uh, judge nominations in the state legislature. And mm-hmm. I'm just glad he's on, too. So happy birthday to Ali. We'll have to sing happy birthday to him. Thank you, Senator. <laughs> Thanks. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live all day, every day at WBAI.org. That was State Senator Jessica Ramos, a Democrat representing Queens neighborhoods of Jackson Heights, Corona and Elmhurst, a few other parts of Queens as well. And Ramos is just one of the many really relevant and excellent guests you'll hear on City Watch and on all of WBAI a 60-year-old news station that continues to bring you peace and justice radio hour after hour, day after day, but we cannot do it without you, and that is no joke. We are in the midst of our summer membership drive right now, and we hope you will consider making a cash contribution to WBAI to help keep us on the air and to help us produce this great content that we do every single day. But it's a tough time for most of us right now, and news organizations included. WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners to continue bringing great coverage, excellent interviews. In recent weeks, City Watch has featured some really marquee guests talking about the biggest issues affecting our communities, our state, and even our country. We've had Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Grace Meng, Carolyn Maloney, the Democratic nominee for Congress in the Bronx and part of Westchester, Jamal Bowman, the Democratic nominee for Queensborough President, Donovan Richards, to name a few. We want to continue bringing you that same level of analysis and reporting, the same great guests coming into the studio or now talking by phone for interviews. So please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give to WBAI.org and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens. Follow the prompts. You can also call our call center at 516-620-3600. That's 516-620-3602. And say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of whatever program you want, but really in the name of City Watch. Give us a shout out. Show us some love. Say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of City Watch. You can also text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your phone. We appreciate the support. Act now. And I'll throw in a free digital subscription to my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor, and we're the only daily print newspaper in the entire borough of Queens. If you subscribe to WBAI, send me a DM on Twitter. I am at David F. Brand. Again, at David F. Brand. And let me know you pitched in, and I'll get you the Queen's Daily Eagle soaring into your inbox every morning. Again, that's double the bang for your buck. Become a BAI buddy and an Eagle Amigo with one monthly contribution. Visit give to WBAI.org. That's give the number two, WBAI.org. Thanks for considering and for contributing. This is City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, our next guest 
is definitely an already an eagle amigo because he is very involved in Queens politics as an election attorney for many candidates in the borough. But he also represents candidates elsewhere in the city, and he recently took on a high-profile case suing the Board of Elections on behalf of his client, Siraj Patel, a candidate for Congress in New York's 12th Congressional District. Our guest, Ali Najmi, who I just learned it's his birthday today, so our very special guest, Ali Najmi, along with his co-counsel, J. Remy Green, represented Brooklyn Assembly candidate Emily Gallagher. They noticed that thousands of votes had been disqualified in their candidates' elections after the state adhered to strict rules invalidating mail-in ballots because the envelopes were missing postmarks or the envelopes, the ballots were delivered late to the BOE. And both those things had nothing to do with the voters. Those were the fault of either the BOE or the Postal Service. So Najmi and Green connected with more than a dozen voters whose mail-in ballots were disqualified. And those voters also joined this landmark lawsuit and they won. A federal judge ruled that the State Board of Elections must count all ballots received by June 24th whether or not there was a postmark, as well as ballots received by June 25th that were postmarked by June 23rd or earlier. So the decision had far-reaching consequences because it didn't just apply to those specific elections that they were working with the candidates on, it applies statewide. Now, it also caught the attention of Donald Trump and a boatload of conservatives who are twisting what happened in New York to smear absentee voting at the same time as states try to make it easier to vote by mail in order to limit crowds at polling places on Election Day in November. Here to talk with us about what happened in the Maloney Patel race and the reverberations of the lawsuit is election lawyer Ali Najmi. Welcome to City Watch. Good morning, David. Thank you. So I mentioned this race in your lawsuit caught the attention of many conservatives, including the president. And you're actually going on Fox News this afternoon to talk about it, right? Yeah, catch me live at 12 o'clock on Fox News to talk about All it. Right. So I figured we could help you warm up a bit. Mr. Najmi, what role do Hillary's emails play here? <laughs> Zero. Great. But seriously, and I should say happy birthday, but seriously, what happened with the ballots that were disqualified in, throughout Brooklyn, but also in parts of Queens and Manhattan as well? You know, we had uh, looked at thousands of uh, preliminarily invalidated ballots throughout Brooklyn and Queens. And I was looking at them because I represented uh, eight campaigns in a post-primary process after the election. And if it wasn't for these orders to show cause and lawsuits that I had filed on their behalf uh, preemptively to ensure that their counts uh, are done correctly and follow the election law, I would not have been entitled to all these copies of invalidated ballots. When we're looking through these copies, we're seeing so many late postmarks, and in Brooklyn especially, we're seeing no postmarks. And people are even writing on the, on the outside of their ballot envelopes, I didn't get this until June 23rd, which is the last day for a postmark. And the day, That was actually the day of the primary, so people weren't getting their the ballots the until the primary. Correct, and that's the last legal day to get a postmark on your ballot envelope in order for it to count. So people were set up by late mailing, never to have actually gotten a timely postmark. In fact, I had saw one ballot when I'm looking through, I'm, I'm sorry, ballot envelopes, when I'm looking through the invalidated ballots in, for Queens, and, a, and, and a, a woman wrote on her ba ballot envelope that she didn't get this till June 23rd. And she didn't live too far away from me. Hmm. She lived in Jamaica States. So I decided to go visit her. I knocked on her door. She turned out to be an 82-year-old woman, a retired professor from CUNY. And she told me her story. And I, when she told me what happened, and I told her her vote didn't count, she was so upset, I was upset, and I asked her if she wanted to be a plaintiff in the federal action. She said yes. And that's really how this whole thing started. So I bet there's a lot of listeners right now who went through the same thing. They didn't, didn't get their ballot until the day before Election Day or until Election Day and uh, probably wondering if their vote counted. And, it, and maybe it didn't. But because of this lawsuit, now the Board of Elections is going to have to count thousands of more ballots across the state, correct? Correct. They're the judge has ordered a statewide injunction directing the state board of elections to direct all local county boards to count ballots received by the boards on June 24th and June 25th, uh, even if they don't have a postmark. Late postmarks are not in. Late postmarks still do not count. Our original relief that was requested 
actually was for all ballots by June 30th, whether it's no postmark or late postmark to be counted. We didn't get that total relief. We did get uh, the issue of no postmark uh, that we received on June 24th and 25th. If it came in on the 25th or 24th with a late postmark, it's not going to count. So when you hear conservatives, including the president, talk about what was going on there, and uh, I know a lot of Fox News contributors, uh, the president himself addressed this at press conferences saying that they should run the entire Maloney-Patel race all over again because of all the issues here. Were the ballots thrown out? What happened with the ballots? So they were invalidated. No ballots were thrown out. No ballots were missing. No ballots were shredded. Nothing like that has happened. The president saying ballots were are gone missing, that's false. I've been trying to fact-check him on Twitter as much as possible, but it's hard to keep up with all his lies. <laughs> the president is manipulating this situation for a nefarious purpose. And what I believe we have discovered in this case through two days of an evidentiary hearing by having State Board of Elections officials on the stand and the United States Postal Service officials on the stand is that, yeah, there are problems. There are a a host of problems. But actually all those problems are fixable. We can get this right. I actually have a lot of faith in New York pulling this off in November, especially after what we've learned. And mail-in voting, voting by mail, is the best, safest, most transparent way to vote, and it is one that increases the voter turnout, which should be everybody's goal. The president doesn't want higher turnout, and that's why he's manipulating the situation. And you found, based on your uh, conversations, or I guess uh, uh, questioning of Postal Service officials as part of this lawsuit, that more than 34,000 ballots weren't even brought to the Postal Service for delivery until the very day before the primary election. So it sounds like that's an issue that might not have come out otherwise, but could be fixed just by mailing the bo- bringing the ballots to be mailed a little earlier. I think that's right. We wouldn't have found that out. That was actually one of those turning points of the, of the hearing. It's one of those stunning moments in the trial where a big fact is really uh, revealed. And I had heard rumors about late mailing and late printing, and I, and, and I went looking for it in the hearing, and it, it came out through Postal Service employee testimony. They keep track of when Board of Elections drops off sort of like big bulk mail, and it came out that on June 22nd, 34,000, over 34,000 ballots were mailed out. In fact, the last order to the printer from the Board of Elections was June 21st, and so we got to definitely make sure the Board of Elections gets these ballots out on time, early, timely, not set up voters to fail. And we cannot bet against New Yorkers' desire to vote. One thing we've learned from this process is that when we give New Yorkers an option to vote through the mail, you are going to see record voting participation, unprecedented levels of voter participation. And so let's get ready. So this is kind of a a test run, I mean, an important test run, but also uh, something that the state can improve on. But can you just spell out some of the specific things the state needs to do better to ensure things are smoother in November and maybe what other states can learn from this? Well, definitely. First of all, there are things related to making sure the ballots get printed on time, uh, early, sent out early, and with enough time for voters to turn it around and get it back, uh, especially with what is the required postmark. Just to be sure, I still believe the postmark requirement is really one that shouldn't apply, and our case is not over. Uh, the preliminary injunction has been granted, and we will be exploring um, further constitutional issues related to the postmark. But one of the basic things that the board could do is design the envelope better. Do you know how many ballots were disqualified because there was no signature? Now, that wasn't part of our case. Our case only led to, uh, was uh, involving postmarks. By and large, the, the number one reason that things were not uh, ballots were disqualified was because of signatures. And in a business, if you had that level of an error rate, they would call it a design defect. And here, they're, they're calling it the voter's fault. That doesn't make sense. As an attorney in private practice, I routinely send out documents for clients to sign, and I put a giant yellow sticker with a big yellow uh, arrow next to where they need to sign. Why, couldn't, why can't we have a giant colored arrow next to where people need to sign um, on the ballot envelope? That right there would fix a lot because the ballot envelope is confusing. There's so much language. Uh, there are different languages. There is 
a design issue here that needs to be uh, fixed. One of the other reasons that an envelope ballot envelope would be disqualified is because the ballot envelope is not sealed. Remember, there are two envelopes: the one you put your ballot in, and then the one that you put the ballot you put the ballot in the ballot envelope, and you take the ballot envelope and put it in the outside envelope, which actually is the one that gets the postmark. Well, even talking about it now, it's so confusing. You talk about multiple envelopes, little tiny boxes that you need to sign and complete everything perfectly. And then with the postmark, that has nothing to do with the voter. The voter, you drop off your ballot at in a blue mailbox, you bring it to the post office, and then it's up to the Postal Service to issue that postmark. But if they don't do that for some reason, then boom, your ballot, your vote didn't count. Right. But there are two, there are two, there are a couple of issues that we need to educate voters better on, but I actually believe that we need to just change certain design issues to, to increase uh, the effectiveness and, and to increase the qualifications of these votes when they arrive. And, and the first is put an arrow next to where you need to sign. The second is the ballot envelope needs to be sealed. And a lot of people just didn't seal it and put it in the other envelope and sealed that one and mailed it. I mm-hmm. think perhaps in the middle of a pandemic, people are less likely to lick the envelope. So let's throw on a self-adhesive uh, envelope for both to voters. The other thing is, I don't know if people remember this, if they voted by mail, if they're listening, getting the ballot into the ballot envelope was tricky. It was a really tight fit. I could barely get it in. If you're somebody who's elderly, you're not putting it in there. It's not getting in there. They could have made it two, three centimeters bigger, and it would have been a smoother fit. A lot of ballot envelopes, a lot of ballots were received with the ballot outside the ballot envelope in the regular envelope. So they, they couldn't get it in there. And it would be a struggle. I struggled. I'm 36. I struggled with it. If you're 80, well, you imagine someone, yeah, someone with arthritis or, or some type right. of impairment putting a ballot. And it's just it's amazing to when talking with you to reveal the the very minor issues that I think an industrial designer or uh, maybe better election law would uh, be able to count more votes. But Ali Najmi, election attorney, about to appear on Fox News in an hour. Thanks for coming on for a warm up session and happy birthday to you. Thank you, David. Thanks for joining City Watch. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live all day, every day at WBAI.org. For our next segment, I'm going to turn it over to news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston with a segment in her excellent series, New York in Crisis, Coronavirus Diaries. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. I'm Safan Kim. I'm a reporter with WABC-TV in New York. Well before any of this happened with the shutdown or, or the, the, uh, the quarantine, if you want to call it that, the pause, a lot of the Chinatowns, and there's several in New York, right? You have Flushing in Queens and Chinatown Manhattan, even have some in Brooklyn. They had been suffering long before the economic shutdown, right? Because even in February, January, there was a lot of xenophobia. And some of it, I would say, not even just from outsiders. I say that because, for instance, Flushing, Queens, Chinatown, unlike Manhattan, is not primarily based on tourism revenue. But you saw restaurants there virtually empty even back then. And that is, to me, an indicator that even the local residents in that community had fears about eating out. So they were suffering early on. And so for them, this has been going on how many months now? And then you couple in the economic shutdown. And it's been tremendous, I think. These are communities that you never see close, um, which are closed indefinitely and, and may struggle to reopen. A lot of these folks are small business owners that don't have the savvy to apply for these loans or are undocumented, for instance, and are afraid to file police reports. Just think about anecdotally the number of incidents that don't go reported, right? And, and that's been the sort of the stark disturbing contrast is crime has virtually vanished. I mean, it's plummeted. There's nothing else to cover in the city right now but the pandemic. You, you drive around town, there's nothing happening except for the anti-Asian incidents. And, and that's been sort of the alarming thing is that while crime has plummeted to like near zero levels, the incidents against uh, the hate crimes against Asian Americans has risen uh, in just complete opposite direction. So that is the only area we're seeing real crime um, ticking up. And that's obviously troubling. 
if you follow the news, you know, there's a debate now about if the NYPD should be in the business at all about enforcing social distancing. And you have, you know, some pretty controversial situations now that police are getting into with, with the general public. Um, so you're starting to have increased the number of incidents outside of the Asian community, not all positive per se. Um, that's not to say that there isn't positivity when you look around, but um, I think there's an evolution now of sort of the behavior of folks. Uh, we are, every, as everyone understands, a little cooped up, getting antsy, right? Um, and there's a question about how you enforce all this. If there's some positivity here is that everyone realizes that, you know, it sounds cliche, but we are really in it together in that sense, right? The issues and the, and the challenges that one community faces is more or less the same as the other. Now, this has been reported a lot about the economic disparity, and that's been, I think, abundantly highlighted in the media that, you know, if you live in poverty and impoverished, you're having a harder time, you know, accessing healthcare and, and nutritious food, for instance, right? And if anything, I think that we can all agree that this time has sort of exacerbated and highlighted the inequalities, I guess, of the system, right? Like those who are vulnerable have become more vulnerable, whether it's by age or poverty. And I think if anyone wasn't, on, wasn't aware of this acutely, you certainly are now. The reality is, uh, I don't think like most New Yorkers are walking around blaming each other, right? I mean, I think that needs to be sort of clarified, right? You're always going to have a few troublemakers. And in a time like this, they tend to get a little more attention. It's important to keep in context, I think. Stefan Kim is a reporter with WABC-TV and a co-chair of the Asian American Journalists Association's Media Watch. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. Thank you, Celeste. Celeste's amazing series is a time capsule for how New York City and our neighbors have handled the COVID-19 outbreak, and it's beautiful to listen to each week. And I encourage you to check out this great series of journalism by visiting WBAI.org. And right there on the main page, Coronavirus Diary is there. There are, I think, 16 installments, uh, all broken down into four to five minute segments. Um, and, you know, talk about how it's a time capsule. You just heard from a reporter talking to Celeste in May or June about how crime was going down citywide while anti-Asian attacks were increasing. Well, now is a different story. Crime is, is spiking and violent crime is spiking. And leaders, the media, everyday New Yorkers are kind of playing a daily blame game about what the true issue is. Is it the courts? Is it uh, the police? Is it demonstrations, protests that have been going on. Meanwhile, we're in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic, mass unemployment uh, on the verge of an economic collapse or at least an econ economic depression or significant recession. So it'll be important, I think, as we move forward to consider the many intersectional factors that are causing the spike in crime right now and look forward to that happening. But many of the things that the reporter said are still true, how COVID-19 has exposed so many of the inequities that already existed in society and that the illness, the public health crisis, the economic crisis related to the illness has really exacerbated. And my next guest is going to talk a bit about that. The COVID-19 pandemic has had perhaps its most devastating impact on residents of nursing homes and group homes, killing thousands of older and disabled adults while forcing them to remain quarantined away from their loved ones for months. Meanwhile, staff members are getting sick and exposing themselves to life-threatening illness while they're earning a minimum wage and at times barely a living wage or not even a living wage. Our next guest has advocated for alternatives to nursing home care for seniors and people with disabilities and for higher wages for home care workers. Brian O'Malley is the executive director of the Consumer Directed Personal Assistance Association of New York. Brian O'Malley, welcome to CityWatch. Thank you for having me, David. You advocate for a type of at-home care called consumer-directed personal assistance. What exactly does that mean? So consumer-directed personal assistance is home care, as we think of it, except for instead of an agency sending someone to your house, you as the recipient are actually responsible for recruiting, hiring, and supervising your own staff, which really gives people an amazing amount of control over the services that they receive and who provides what are very often very intimate and personal tasks like 
getting dressed or going to the bathroom. And so the state does fund consumer-directed personal assistance through Medicaid, but that funding has been cut significantly over the past two years. And what have been the consequences of that? Realistically, what we've seen uh, most often are wage cuts for workers. So in many instances, some agencies were able to allow people to pay their workers at a higher than minimum wage rate. You know, in New York City, folks were getting $18, $19 an hour. Upstate, folks were getting 13 to 14 But over the past year and a half, as we've dealt with over $200 million in cuts, the wages have just gone down and gone down because most of the agencies were already some of the most efficient in home care, running at between 10 and 13 percent on an admin side. So, you know, when 90 cents on the dollar are already going to wage are already going to wages and benefits, there's no place else to cut except those wages and benefits. So, you know, it has had a real impact on people's ability to actually continue to hire new staff and keep the staff that they have. I worked in the kitchen of a nursing home for a few summers in college, and that was a that was a big education for me, and I think a better education than I got actually in college. Um, I was the only seasonal worker there. The staff members were busting their butts every single day in tough conditions, hot kitchen, uh, wake, waking up doing the 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Sh- uh, shift, and making like $11 an hour. Uh, it was a little more than minimum wage, but still very low wage, hard to save, hard to afford. Uh, much much of an apartment with that. Uh, same went for the nurses' assistants who do some of the most challenging tasks imaginable, cleaning, bathing, comforting older adults. Why don't we pay the people who care for older adults, adults better? It's a values system, right? Um, at the end of the day, we are reticent to raise taxes on those who can most afford it. You know, for the past two years, we've been calling, we at City Paintings have been calling for the state to raise taxes on the ultra wealthy, those like Michael Bloomberg, um, who have in many instances made significant amounts of money during this pandemic. Um, I, I saw a report yesterday that Jeff Bezos, while not living in New York, has earned $45 billion since March. Um, so we're, we're if we made an active decision to tax these individuals slightly more than you and I are taxed, we, we would have the money and resources to actually provide more in the way of wages for folks. But we are loath to do so as a society. The state has chosen not to do that. And so there's just a lack of revenue to actually pay people what they deserve to get paid. And you're actually when you throw in ageism and ableism on the other side, it becomes more, even more of a problem. So you're our second guest today after State Senator Jessica Ramos to advocate for higher taxes on the ultra wealthy to be able to afford things like higher wages for home care workers and and, uh, care workers for older adults. Now, talk about what's your goal here? Like what exactly is a the proper wage, I guess, the proper income for nursing home workers, for home care workers uh, who you are representing. Right. And, you know, David, I think if you look at it and go back not very far, if you go back 15 years, when New York City put in place its local living wage, home care workers were getting 150% of the minimum wage. And, you know, people were able to recruit workers. People were able to find good, high-quality workforce and keep them at that wage. And if, and unfortunately, the wage has really lost pace with the minimum wage overall. And, you know, even a couple of years ago, we looked at it and the governor was saying, oh, everyone deserves a living wage of $15, which is a fantastic statement. And he was saying on the other side, home care workers deserve $15, which is a fantastic statement as well. But when you put those two together, you get home care workers deserve minimum wage. And that we have 
a little bit more of a problem with because we staunchly believe that for the hard, hard, difficult, often skilled work that this workforce is doing, they deserve more than the minimum wage. And we think we should be back to that 150% of a minimum wage. Now, if more care was done in the home, what kind of impact would that have on nursing homes? Yeah, I think from our organization's perspective, we feel that nursing homes should exist as acute rehab facilities only. There, There is no need for permanent placement nursing homes if we make sure that home care services, consumer-directed services are adequately available in the community. Um, Michael Bloomberg will never wind up in a nursing home. He has the resources to pay for his care in the community, and he will do that. I mean, you, you very rarely see millionaires and billionaires in a nursing home. You go to a nursing home if you don't have the resources to provide for your care in the community. And so, again, it's a priority system as a state. Do we want to send people to a nursing home where, you know, the median lifespan is five months, according to schedules, uh, according to studies? Or do we want folks to live in the community where the average person is receiving services for over five years? That doesn't seem like a difficult question to me, but surprisingly, we still rely on nursing homes. Well, Brian O'Malley, the executive director of the Consumer Directed Personal Assistance Association of New York, thank you for joining City Watch. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM. And before we close the show today, I want to make one more pitch to become a sustaining member. WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners to continue bringing great coverage, interviews, and analysis each week. We want to continue bringing you that caliber of reporting, interesting guests. Today we had State Senator Jessica Ramos, Election Attorney Ali Najmi, and then the Executive Director of the Consumer Directed Personal Assistance Association of New York, talking about alternatives to nursing homes and also raising wages for home care workers and for care workers who are really getting uh, getting not getting much money, we'll say that when it comes to doing some really challenging things and really doing some of the hardest tasks you can ask a worker to do, caring and uh, comforting our older adults and people with disabilities. We want to continue doing that, and we we need your help. Listeners can become buddies, BAI buddies, by going to give2wbai.org. That's give, the number 2, wbai.org, and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens following the prompts. You can also call our call center at 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602, or text WBAI to 41444. We appreciate the support. Act now, and I'll throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. We're the only English-language daily print paper in Queens, and I'm the editor, and be happy to have a subscription of the Eagle soaring into your inbox every morning. Again, that's double the bang for your buck. Become a BAI buddy and an Eagle amigo with one monthly contribution. Just visit give2wbai.org. Thanks for considering and for contributing. And thank you for listening today. You have been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, David Brand. And I want to thank you again so much for joining us this morning. I also want to thank our guests, Senator Jessica Ramos, Election Attorney Ali Najmi, and Brian O'Malley, the Executive Director of the Consumer Directed Personal Assistance Association of New York. also want to thank engineer Giovanni Anglin, who is working the controls in the studio. Thanks a lot, Giovanni. My co-host Jeff Simmons will be back next week with another really great show, and you're not going to want to miss this. He'll be talking with Victorious DaCosta, a producer of the new documentary, Yousef Hawkins, Storm Over Brooklyn. And this documentary comes out on HBO on August 12th, so Wednesday. He'll also be talking with E.J. White, the author of You Talking to Me? The Unruly History of New York English, talking about that famous accent we love. And finally, he'll be talking with Rachel Weinstein, the founder of Operation Backpack and vice president at Volunteers of America for Greater New York. Thank you again for listening today. Wear your mask, 
Wash your hands. We are still all in this together. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jane Fonda, and this is WBAI, listener-supported, non-commercial radio in New York. Hi, my name is Michael G. Haskin. WBAI is listener-supported, commercial-free, resistance radio, challenging norms and defying them. Let's break down what that means. It means that no clandestine corporate entity tells me how to do my show. You better believe that. It means that you, the listener, and the diverse WBAI community have a voice which reverberates across the tri-state area. You drive this station. So fuel us. Donate by visiting give to WBAI.org or pledge right now from your smartphone by texting the letters WBAI to 41444. And thank you for your support. The bells of hell go tingling for you, but not for me. Oh, death, where is thy stingling or grave thy victory? McDonough John and McCourt Malachy are on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, on Sundays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Topics, wit, wisdom, wackery, sausages. Join us, please. But not for me. Oh, death, where is thy singling or grave thy victory? The census is a count of everyone in the United States, no matter your immigration status. The census count is how our communities get billions of dollars for programs that we all rely on. You'll be able to do this online or even over the phone. Now let's go through some of the questions. This looks easy. So the census asks, how many people live in your home? Do you rent or own? Everyone's name, how you're related, age, ethnicity, and home phone number. So me and my wife, we have two kids. I'm 40. You get the idea. Your information is completely confidential. By law, it cannot be shared with anyone. The census only comes once every 10 years, and 2020 is our chance to get it right. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? And if 
you're headed out like Lizzo, you grab your cell phone, your keys, and your mask. And if you don't have a WBAI mask yet, call 516-620-3602 and order one in white or black. 516-620-3602 for a contribution of $35 to this listener-sponsored non-corporate radio station. These masks are cool. They're in black or white. They're 100% cotton. They have the saying, keep free speech radio alive on them. And remember, when you head out the door, you grab your keys, you grab your cell phone, you check yourself, and you grab your mask, and you put it on. Good morning to all of our listeners. You are tuned into WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York. That last program was City Watch. That can be heard 